Well, most people who know anything about the Bible probably know that it has two parts, an Old Testament and a New Testament. They may know, if they know a little more, that what we call the Old Testament is simply the Bible of the Jewish people, the Hebrew Bible, translated into English. And they may also know that the New Testament is newer, at least in time, that it's written in Greek, not in Hebrew, and that it's the story of the life of Christ. But beyond those few facts, most people seem to be pretty unaware of uh, what the relationship is between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So uh, through the years, I've found out that it's commonly thought that the Old Testament is about a vengeful, angry God, while the New Testament speaks of a loving and gracious God. And as pervasive as that idea is among people, it really doesn't match the Bible's content. Jesus himself spoke more about hell than the entire Old Testament does combined. It also seems to be commonly thought that in the Old Testament, people were saved by their obedience to the law, while in the New Testament, people are saved by grace, not by obedience. But when you read it carefully, that also is proven to be false. Both the Testaments have a lot to say about both faith and obedience. And, and it seems that for many people, their idea is that for Christians, the only really important thing is the New Testament. The Old Testament kind of provides some interesting but mostly non-essential background. The problem is none of those ideas, as common as they are, are correct. And, and this morning, we want to think about the relationship between the Old and the New Testament based on this passage that Mary Kay just read to us. The book of Galatians that we're looking at is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, his first letter, earliest letter that he wrote in his ministry. And it's about a topic that we have been calling, and the, the, the Bible itself in Galatians calls, justification through faith. And I noted over the last few weeks, and Devin noted again last week, that the basic teaching of the Christian faith is this teaching, the most essential key teaching of Christianity that sets it apart from everything else is this idea of justification through faith, the idea that God exchanges our faith for right standing with him. And this exchange is very central to the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. In fact, the last five weeks, we've referred to it every week, and you might be thinking about this point. Okay, you've said it. You've made it clear. I mean, how many times can you talk about this? That's a thick book there you got, preacher. You know, there ought to be something else you can find in there to talk about. But there really is more about this topic we need to think about. This book unfolds it and kind of expands it and goes more deeply into it. The the passage this morning sets out this distinct teaching, justification by faith, as being something that isn't simply what Jesus taught or what Paul himself came up with, as is commonly thought or taught in universities at times that Paul was the real founder of Christianity. He took this teaching of a Palestinian peasant named Jesus and he organized it around a central principle called justification through faith and he founded the Christian faith. It, no, it's not that at all. Paul is, is very careful to say, he says, it's simply the message of the Old Testament made clear and brought to completion. That's all that it is. So before we consider that, let's think for a moment about why we're even talking about that. Why does Paul find it so important to seek to prove that his message is rooted in the Old Testament? 
It's in line with the clear teaching of the Hebrew Bible on which he was raised, excuse me, from earliest childhood. Why should it matter to you today that this particular teaching is not just the message of the New Testament, not simply the teaching of Jesus. He didn't come up with it on his own. Paul didn't come up with it. It's the message of the whole Bible, not just in the New Testament. Well, the reason this is so important is that too many people today have a a tendency to pick and choose those things that they want to pay attention to. When they read the Bible, they, they, they think there are parts in the Bible that are hard to accept. So I've had people say, I like the Bible's teaching, particularly that about loving other people. That's beautiful. I, I want to live that way. But I don't like the parts that talk about forgiving other people, even those who harm us. I could never forgive someone who has harmed my child. I can't accept that idea. Or, or I've had people say, I love the Bible, except for the parts about sexual morality. Because that just does not fit in with real life the way I experience it in the modern world. Now, what happens when you adopt that kind of approach and you, you decide to take different parts of the Bible that you like and put them together, construct them in a form that will fit your way of thinking, your way of living? When you do that, you end up with kind of a truncated, misshapen, incomplete understanding of the Christian faith. It's kind of a Frankenstein-like monster where you take different parts from different things and you put it together and you think it has life, but it's not real life at all. Because Christian faith, as it's revealed in the Bible, as it was taught by Jesus, is a complete, robust, fully satisfying way of thinking and living. It's comprehensive. It embraces all of life. So if key ideas are pulled out and they're put off to one side, it's incomplete. It's not whole. And that means that true Christian faith that which is drawn from every part of the Bible and is logically coherent, that kind of Christian faith is going to challenge every one of us at some point. It's going to challenge every person because it's a complete worldview. That's why the New Testament says, all scripture is God-breathed. That is, as I breathe out my words, you can understand what I'm thinking. In the same way, Scripture, all of Scripture, it says, is God's own word written. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the Bible's own perspective is that any teaching of the Bible, any part, has to conform to the whole in order to be true, not just to some favorite passage or key doctrine the person likes to focus on. And that means when we're talking about this one, justification through faith, we're talking about the key central teaching of the New Testament around which everything else hangs. It's the message upon which your eternal destiny depends, according to Scripture. This book, Galatians, makes it crystal clear that those who are justified by faith are accepted by God, eternally forgiven by God, cleansed, empowered by the Holy Spirit to live for God. And those who reject this message or confuse it for another message are lost eternally. So don't give up on this one too early. Say, well, of course, I understand that because there's a lot to understand. Be sure you understand you experience the full teaching of the Bible on this point. 
Now, we're talking about the gospel in the Old Testament. Paul's point is that this message that he is preaching is not something he came up with. He's even asserting it's not something that Jesus himself came up with. It's the gospel that was found in the Old Testament. Now, let me explain the Old Testament real briefly. Jewish people don't call it the Old Testament, obviously. To us, it's old. And the New Testament refers to the covenant that is in the Old Testament as old. And so we call it the Old Testament. They call it Tanakh. Tanakh is an anagram that stands for three letters, T-N-K, which are three Hebrew words, Torah, which means law or instruction, Nevi'im, prophets, and Ketuvim, writings. And those three things, law, prophets, and writings, comprise the whole of what we think of as the Old Testament. Sometimes, as a form of shorthand, the whole Old Testament is called Torah. Jesus refers to it one uh, way that time, and uh, one time in that way. Well, while the majority of the Old Testament isn't, is the law, and it's about the giving of the law to Israel and all of that, all of the Old Testament isn't. And here's what I mean. The law, which is the covenant standard given to Israel at Mount Sinai when he formed them into a nation, the law doesn't appear until Exodus chapter 20. So if you read the first five books of the Bible, which are the Torah, the books written by Moses, you have to read all of Genesis and 19 chapters of Exodus before you even get to the point where God gives the law. That means that there was a part of history that is before the law. So you can think of the Old Testament as dividing into two parts. The part before the law, which is a brief part in the whole of the Old Testament, but it's one and a half books, and the part after the giving of the law, which is the majority of the Old Testament. And the point that he makes in this passage that was just read to us is that in both of those time periods, before the law and after the law, this idea of being accepted by God on the basis of faith is taught. The burden is to demonstrate that both parts of the Old Testament story underline the the concept of being accepted by God through faith alone. Now, the Bible opens with 11 chapters that we would think of as prehistory, That is, they record events before what we think of as human beings as the beginning of recorded history. But when you get to Genesis chapter 12, you come to the life of this man named Abraham. And this is the first person whose life we can date with some degree of certainty. He was born sometime around 2150 BC. And beginning with him, with his life, is the unfolding of the story of redemption that the rest of the Bible contains. The book of Genesis is primarily about Abraham, his son, and then Abraham's grandson, and the 12 great-grandsons of Abraham. That's the story of uh, the book of Genesis. The book of Exodus opens 400 years later. These 12 great-grandsons of Abraham have become a large number of people, 12 tribes. God leads them out of bondage in Egypt and takes them to Mount Sinai, where he forms this loose confederation of tribes into a nation. He grants them a special relationship with himself called a covenant, and he gives to them standards to live by that are called the law. Now, the first point that's made in Galatians, it would be good if you have a Bible, if you open to it there, page 273 again. The first point is that before the law was given, long before, some 400 years, in the life of this very key individual named Abraham, the gospel was first revealed, and it was revealed in the promise that God gave to Abraham. Now, 
hold your finger in the book there in Galatians chapter 3 and turn to the beginning of your Bible. I think this is on page 10, if you use one of the Bibles around you. And this is the beginning of the life of Abraham, chapter 12 of Genesis. Verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who curses you or dishonors you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now this promise is um, the beginning or it's really a restatement of the most basic promise made in Genesis chapter 3 that is now expanded. And you might think of it as sort of a sevenfold faceted jewel that is presented. There are at least seven parts to this promise. Each one of these parts expand and grow as you move through the Old Testament. But the key one we want to look at this morning is the very last one. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This promise becomes repeated to Abraham's son, his grandson, and then to his great-grandsons. It's a promise that is later stated as in you and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. It's like the key basic promise that the rest of the Bible unfolds. And this is what Paul refers to in his careful reading of the Old Testament. So keep it in mind. There's this basic promise given to Abraham. Abraham then goes out and he he moves to this land that God has promised to him and he begins to live there. Now, turn over in Genesis 1 page to chapter uh, 15, the beginning of chapter 15. God restates one facet of the promise and begins to expand it. He takes him outside, it says, says, look up the stars. Can you count the number of stars? No, of course he can't. They are innumerable. And God says to him in verse 5, so shall your offspring be. Now that's basic to the promise. I will give you a multitude of descendants. They will form a great nation. So shall your offspring be. By the way, he has no offspring at this point. No children. So he's told this promise again, so shall your offspring be. And then verse 6 becomes very key in your whole understanding of the Bible. It's what Paul quotes a number of times in the New Testament. And he, that is Abraham, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Righteousness is right standing with God, acceptance with God. And what this says is that Abraham heard the promise of God. He believed that the Lord would fulfill his promise, despite whatever obstacles he would face. And the Lord credited or counted his faith as right standing with himself. God accepted Abraham on the basis of his faith. Now, this is what all lies behind You don't need to keep your finger there. We're going to look at Galatians from this point forward. Galatians chapter 3. Know then, he says, verse 7, that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, here's the first point. He makes it quite clearly and underlines it. 
The promise made to Abraham at the beginning of the Bible's unfolding story of redemption is a revealing of the gospel. This message that Jesus came to fulfill, that I and the others are preaching, Paul says, this message is the promise to Abraham that God blesses us with salvation by faith in the gracious promise of God. Abraham didn't obey the law, he says. There was no law to be obeyed. It didn't come for 430 years. Abraham received the free promise of God. I will do this for you. And Abraham believed the promise of God, and God credited righteous to him on the basis of his faith. And that promise to Abraham is the Old Testament revelation of the gospel. It's the message of salvation by faith in the gracious promise of God. So what he's saying is that Abraham's the first example of this teaching. He's the first person who we're told quite explicitly believed God and his faith was counted to him as being right with God, acquitted of whatever sins he had committed, acceptable to God. And so he, uh, Abraham is then the spiritual father of everyone who comes to God in the same way, who comes to God on the basis of faith. And here's God's promised blessing of the world through Abraham and his seed, and he believes it. So he says, those who are of faith, verse 9, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, why, why does he say that people, and in this case, nations, Gentiles, non-descendants of Abraham, are also his offspring? Why does he say they are his offspring as well? Well, it's because they share the faith that Abraham has. Why do they call it, what does he call it, a blessing? They receive a blessing. He could say um, they are saved through faith, just like Abraham, or they're forgiven. Well, it, it tells us that salvation is more than simply an individual thing. This is the fulfillment of a promise that's going to affect people of all nations, ultimately. The message of salvation is more about uh, is more about is about more than individual salvation. It's the blessing of people all over the earth. Ultimately, it's the restoration of the earth itself, and all of that is contained in these final words of the promise to Abraham: "In you and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed." Now, the whole Old Testament story isn't about Abraham. His story only appears at the beginning, although he becomes key. Everything kind of unfolds organically from him. He's foundational to it. But what happened is, as I mentioned, many years later, some 400 and more, God took the 12 great-grandsons of Abraham, who had now formed families that had grown and developed to become many people. He took them and he formed them together into a great nation. So the majority of what we call the Old Testament is the story of this covenant that God entered into with the people of Israel. Israel was the name God gave to Abraham's grandson. So his sons, who became the tribes, are called the sons of Israel, or the people of Israel. Now, what about after the law was given? God called these people together in Mount Sinai. He gave them his law. They, they took the law, and they began to live by it as a standard of life. How were they accepted by God? Well, he says the law offers a blessing, but the law offers its blessing only to those who obey. 
For those who break it, it offers only a curse. So you come to the end of the first five books of the Bible, the law. You come to the end of that, and, and, and it says in Deuteronomy 27 and 28 that there are cursings and blessings that the law offers. The cursings are in chapter 27 of Deuteronomy, and they end with this key phrase, these key sentence. Deuteronomy 27, verse 25. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law, and do them. Now, that's a very important statement because it's kind of a comprehensive statement. It, 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 it draws into itself every other way that a person could be cursed and says, cursed is, is a person who doesn't do everything that this law requires. Before the law, Abraham received the free promise of God. He believed it and it was accepted by faith. After the law, the law reveals our sin and curses us for our failure to keep it, and it points us back to the promise. The law only blesses those who are perfectly obedient. It curses everyone else. In fact, it says it quite plainly there. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law. Every word of the law. You know, if if you're a outstanding citizen in every way, but you only murder one person? It doesn't work that way, right? You only have to break one law, especially one law of great significance, and you're guilty. And that's how law functions. Now, I want you to look at Galatians 3, and let's take this a step further, beginning in verse 11. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Well, how is it evident? He says, well, let me give you an example. I'm going to take two different passages from the Old Testament, one from the prophets and one from the law, and put them side by side, and it will become evident to you that no one could be justified on the basis of the law. Let's lay these two. First, he says, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, this is a quotation from a prophet. Later in the Bible, the prophet Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4 I'd like you to note at the bottom of the page, if you're using one of the Bibles here, or most Bibles, it's going to have some kind of footnote or marginal reading, it's called, that tells you there is another way to translate this sentence. It could either say the righteous shall live by faith, or using exactly the same words and trying to put them into English, it could say the righteous by faith shall live. Just for your information, that's what I think the proper translation is, as it's in the footnote in the English Standard Version, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. Now, why do I say that kind of um, picky-uni point? Uh, The reason is that it makes very clear, it's it's clear actually the way it's in the text of the Bible, but it it makes very clear that, that this was taught not only to Abraham, not only back when it says Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted him as righteousness, but many hundreds of years later when the prophet spoke, one of the prophets said, the one who is righteous by faith shall live. It's a clear statement of justification through faith in the Old Testament. Even the prophets, Paul is saying, the prophets who took the law and they expanded it and built on it and taught it, even they knew what Abraham experienced. They said the same thing, righteousness, acceptance with God, justification, forgiveness, cleansing of sin, these things are given to a person who trusts the promise of God. Now, he puts that on one side. 
It's evident that no one is justified by the law, for let's look at the prophets. The the prophets said, the one who is righteous by faith shall live. But then he goes on, verse 12, but the law is not of faith. It's not about faith. But um, the law says, the one who does them shall live by them. This is a quotation from Leviticus 18 and verse 5. He puts these two next to each other. The one who is righteous by faith shall live. On the other hand, the law itself said, the one who does them, who keeps the commandments, shall have life by them. He's simply comparing these two verses, and he's telling us that what the law has embedded within it, if you use the law in this way, is it's a principle that you must perfectly obey in order to be accepted. That's the principle of law. That's because the law, it was a preparation for the gospel, and it's the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. Abraham knew that God would accept him by faith. And the law is meant to show us our sins so that we would be prepared for the message that is also found throughout the Old Testament, that you can't be accepted with God on the basis of obedience. You can only be accepted with a God of infinite majesty, whose law is perfect. You can only be accepted by that God, by the true God, through faith in his promise. So then he goes on and wraps it up, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised blessing through faith. The law brings a curse because it demands perfect obedience. If you wish to be accepted on the basis of law, you must obey perfectly. Any disobedience results in rejection, results in curse. The law cannot justify anyone because no one can perfectly keep every one of its demands. And so the law demands doing, whereas the gospel demands believing. Those are the two things he sets up side by side, side by side, doing versus believing. The bad news is you can't do it perfectly. The good news is that this righteousness comes in right at that point, and it is given by grace through faith to those who believe. And what he says with the whole point about Jesus is that Jesus himself took the curse of the law by being hung on a tree. Because the law clearly says in Deuteronomy chapter 21, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. It refers to capital punishment. Jesus, in his death, was hung up before a watching world, hung on a piece of wood. He's suffering the ultimate penalty of public death. And the Bible in the Old Testament curses those who must endure a public death for their crimes. It's like the worst thing imaginable. This person is under the curse of God. He has broken God's law. And under that law, society must carry out the sentence of his punishment. And that's what was done with Jesus Christ. He took our place. He was hung up before a watching world in the agony of death. But he was guiltless. He had no sin of his own for which he ought to die. He kept the law perfectly, unlike any other human being who has ever lived. But having no sin, he kept the law from beginning to end. And in the end, then, he took our place. He was hung up in public execution, dying as a criminal, which the Old Testament itself says is the most cursed thing 
publicly, humanly speaking, a person can experience. And that's why in Christ is found the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. In you and your offspring, ultimately Christ, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. He was the offspring of Abraham who took the curse. He took the place of guilty sinners so that God could open his arms wide and welcome them to himself. And the extent of God's grace covers all nations. Now, this in this place does not mean all people, every single person who's ever lived. It means exactly what it says in the book of Revelation, that on that day at the throne of God, there will be people from every tribe and language and people and nation under the blessings of Abraham. Every nation will be represented there. Because it's a fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. Christ redeemed us by taking the curse for us in our place so that God's blessings might be given to us. The point is this. The entire Old Testament underscores this message. It, It underscores that on one hand, we are accepted with God on the basis of faith because even the father of faith, the beginning of the Bible story, experienced that. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as right standing with God. And on the other hand, this promise was meant to be from the very beginning because the law was given for the very purpose of helping us see that we could only be accepted by God on the basis of faith. It's meant to show from the very beginning that we are unable to fulfill what it demands and so we have to experience the curse that falls on lawbreakers. It shows our inability our need, because we can't obey perfectly on our own. And it's at that point that the gospel promise becomes real. Christ himself fulfilled that by becoming a curse for us. The gospel is both the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, and it's also the fulfillment of the curse of the law. They both underscore the blessings of the gospel. Both the period before the law and the period after the law represent it. That's all the point of the passage. Now, why does that matter? What does it mean? Well, first... The gospel tells us that we are accepted by God. We sinful human beings can be accepted by God, forgiven, blessed, cleansed, empowered, solely on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done. Now, some people at this point confuse their faith for what the gospel is really about. The gospel is not about our faith. Our faith is simply the means by which we appropriate the blessings of Christ. The gospel is about Christ. Our faith doesn't save us. Only Christ could save a person. And I say this because sometimes people talk about faith. I've heard people say on television and various places, I have a lot of faith. I have a lot of faith, they might say. Well, the question is not the amount of their faith, It's the object of their faith. What are they trusting in? And sometimes when I listen carefully, I'm not sure they understand that. When they say I have a lot of faith, they seem to simply mean I feel really good about my faith. I feel really good that I'm strong and I really think about God a lot and I read the Bible a lot and that kind of thing. That's not what justification through faith is about. It isn't about our faith and the quality or strength of our faith. It's about Christ and his sufficiency to save us. Simple illustration I've used for years. In the middle of the winter here, when it's ever so cold, and and a lake is a foot thick with ice, even if you're terrified of going out on that lake, if you will just creep out on your hands and knees onto that lake, that ice is going to hold you up. 
The point is not how much trust you have. It's what you're trusting in. You could drive a truck on a lake a foot thick and be safe. If, on the other hand, that looks thick, but it's only a quarter of an inch thick, you know? Then you can run out on that lake as fast as you want with all the faith in the world, but you're going to fall through and be real wet real quick. It's not our faith. It's what we're trusting in. It's the object of our faith that accomplished salvation, not the quality of our faith. That's the first thing you need to know. Secondly, our faith has to ultimately be in the promise of God. The promise made concerning Christ. Our faith is not simply in Christ as a person. It's in truth about Christ that we're told. That's what the gospel is. That Christ took the curse on himself in our place. When a person trusts that, then their faith is not, is not saying, I really believe that I'm going to be strong and I'm going to be obedient from this point forward. It's not about that. It's not about your good intentions or your feelings. Faith is trusting Jesus Christ to cleanse us and save us based on the promise that God makes in Christ. Faith is trusting Christ. Now, what that means, to take it one step further, is faith is the forsaking of all other objects or sources of faith. It's trusting in Christ and in Christ alone. It's not trusting in Christ plus our obedience. The fact that I have good intentions, I'm going to try my best from this point forward. I'm not going to continue to sin anymore. That's not what it is. Faith rests on Christ alone. And here's the bottom line. Faith that is placed in Jesus Christ and particularly in the promise of the gospel that Jesus makes. The one who trusts in me has eternal life. That kind of faith can withstand any onslaught in life because it's outside of ourselves. The promise remains true no matter what we experience because you see, as you go through life, you're going to experience all kinds of things. Some days will be filled with joy. Some days will be filled with sorrow. Some days as you go through life, you're going to experience tragedy. Other days you're going to experience triumph. And at the end of whatever day you can think of at any point in your life, whether it's a day that is the greatest tragedy you can imagine or whether it's the day of the greatest joy you can imagine, at the end of any one of those days as you move through life, the promise of God in Christ will never change. No matter what changes for you and your circumstances, the strength of how you feel or don't feel at any given point is not really consequential. Christ and his promise never changes. Because in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham has come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. May your trust be in Christ, Christ, and in Christ alone. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. Your word tells us things that we would not know on our own. Well, Father, as we go through this world, we find that in so many ways our life is measured by the things that we produce, the things that we do, and That's such a basic principle of life. And yet you tell us to the one who works his wages, he gets paid at the end of working based on what he has done, based on his obedience. That is an important principle of life. No one can get through life without following that. At the same time, the gospel comes to us and tells us, but God doesn't work on that basis. The gospel works on the basis of what God provides for us on the basis of Christ, and particularly of Christ's death on the cross in our place. 
Oh, thank you, Father, that this is a truth, the most precious truth. It is the possession of your people. It's what we seek to stand for and live for and what we hope to live out in relationship to other people. We pray that you would make that a reality for us as individuals, as fathers and mothers, as children, and as a church. Help us to understand that this is the most basic truth of the Bible. Pray this in Jesus' name.